1: If Hollywood made a movie about your life, who would they cast to play you? For today's guest, that person was Iron Man himself, Robert Downey Jr. Not too shabby. Well, the real life guy is named, and who you're about to hear from, is named Steve Lopez. And he's a columnist for the Los Angeles Times, a.k.a. the LA Times. And he's a four-time Pulitzer Prize finalist, and best-selling author. Like Mitch Albom, he began his career as a sports writer and slowly conquered almost every other topic you can imagine. Steve Lopez has written three novels and a best-selling nonfiction book, The Soloist, which is a New York Times bestseller. Of course, that's the one that became a movie starring Robert Downey Jr. and Jamie Foxx, His latest book, Independence Day, talks about our favorite topic right here on the Retire Sooner podcast, and that's retirement. And early in the interview, you're gonna learn about some of the least happy retirees, people that couldn't stand retirement, in some cases, right out of the gate, which is something that, even though we talk about happy and unhappy retirees right here on the show, I don't think we've ever gotten so many examples of people that just got it wrong. Steve Lopez is a curious journalist, and he wanted to know the good and the bad about headed into retirement, and that's exactly what we're gonna talk about on this episode. I'm Wes Moss. The prevailing thought in America is that you'll never have enough money, and it's almost impossible to retire early. Actually, I think the opposite is true. For more than 20 years, I've been researching, studying, and advising American families, including those who started late, on how to retire sooner and happier. So my mission with the Retire Sooner podcast is to help a million people retire earlier while enjoying the adventure along the way. I'd love for you to be one of them. Let's get started. Steve Lopez,
2: are you in LA? Have you always been, like, how long have you been in California or or not? Well, I was born in uh, Northern California, and my first uh, newspaper jobs were up there um, San Jose Mercury News, Oakland Tribune. Then I went to the Philadelphia Inquirer. Oh, yeah. For many years. Then to Time Magazine in New York. And I've been at the LA Times. It's almost 22 years now.
1: Yeah, it was like, oh, two, like oh, 01, I think you were. Yeah, it's been a yeah, long time. So-
2: Yeah, so I've been uh, living in L.A. the last 20-plus years.
1: You know, when I uh, was trying to research sleuth around for your age and everything I was reading about you, on Wikipedia, by the way, it says your age, well, it's no secret because it's on the interwebs, you were were age 68-69,
2: well, the slide Forget the slash. It's sixty nine. Okay. I'm coming up on seventy. Okay. But you know, another way to look at that is I'm coming up on full social security payments.
1: Well, I I do want to start out with this, but I want to go back to. Oh, I thought
2: this was the show already.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, no, we are. We're we're live. We we are, we're live and unabridged. So have you not started, you've delayed your social uh, social security. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah, but I don't.
2: But I'm I'm stupid about money, and I don't know if that's a good idea or not.
1: You know, there are whole books that debate that very topic. And I don't know the, I don't know the right answer. If you knew exactly how long you're going to live, you would, right. you would know exactly the right answer. There's some important variables. That's a big you know? one. Age of yeah. death is, is a good, is a big one. But listen, I don't think um, if you, and you've still, are you still working full-time, part-time? What is your schedule? Part-time. Yeah. I, I think that if you don't really need the income, then what you're doing by taking social security is you're just increasing your tax bracket. So if you can technically I think if you can afford to wait and you think you've got a little bit of longevity on your side, then yeah, I think it can make sense to to take yeah. it to wait till
2: 70. So I'm waiting. I'm waiting. I've got uh, what is it? Ten months to go.
1: So but I can make an easy case to take it at 62. Uh, and I, well, I have, a, I have a,
2: you gotta, I gotta you gotta live into your mid eighties in order to catch up what you lost if you wait till 70.
1: It's about a 12 to 13 year catch up to bring up, uh, yeah. to be able to make up for the money left on the table. Now, if you're married, it's also a, and your spouse, let's say your spouse doesn't have a whole lot of social security or it's, uh, your spouse didn't work and your spouse is only getting half of yours. Then there's another real argument to wait because now your spouse would inherit your much higher payment. And that might be the biggest draw to wait for some people. yeah,
2: Well, yeah.
1: you, you, it really just, it's very situational, it depends. But you listen, you, you wrote a book about retirement, so I should be asking you. You wrote a book yeah. called Independence Day.
2: <clears throat> yeah, but it's uh, everything but finance, because I know nothing about money.
1: Well, I want to learn about that. I want to learn about what you learned about retirement, which is part of the subtitle. Um, I love the thought that you're writing about some who will never just, some who've done it, or some who will never do it or never, quite retire. And obviously that's the, our audience here, the retire sooner audience. These are people that are our listeners are always thinking about when am I able to stop working in some capacity? doesn't mean they don't go part time, but that's a huge part of our listener base early retirees or people that are maybe not so early, but they're thinking about when they're going to stop work. And this is what I wanted to really cover with you. Right. I, I think that though, because it's so, famous and so popular. I do wanna start out with the soloist and you're, you were played by Robert Downey Jr., which is pretty pretty amazing. Like there's, I don't know if there's probably less than a dozen people in the world or America that get played by an A-list celeb. So I, I think that, can you just walk our audience through that that fascinating part of your career while you were at LA Times, finding Jamie Foxx's character obviously from the movie and just give us a recap of that because it's just such a cool experience for you
2: yeah well um i you know i'm a general interest columnist um just looking for something a little different each day and so you got to keep your eyes and ears open and you know pay attention to what's going on around you and you know being in los angeles it's it's like a shooting gallery (laughs) because there's so much going on um you know there's a little bit of everything happening in california so If you can't find a column out there on the streets, there's something wrong with you. You should give it up. But one day I saw this guy playing a violin, and it was downtown L.A. And he's standing next to a shopping cart that contained all of his belongings. And he had a little sign on the side of his cart that he had written with a magic marker. It said, Little Walt Disney Concert Hall. And a few blocks away is the Walt Disney Concert Hall which is the home of the LA Philharmonic. So I thought, okay, this could be a column. This guy's got, he's hes playing the Little Walt Disney Concert Hall. And then I look closer and I see that the violin is banged up, it's missing two strings. I go to introduce myself to him and he's, you know, he jumps back, just scared to death of me. And I realized there were some mental health issues there. And it took, it took a while, it took many return visits to get to know him, but it turns out that he was a student trained at the Juilliard School for the Performing Arts in New York and ended up living on the streets, homeless in L.A. So I started writing columns about him and trying to find ways to get him housing and get him help. And I started getting all these calls from Hollywood people, from uh, producers and directors, documentary, feature film people. And I didn't really respond to many of them because... Um, I, at that point had written two novels that got Hollywood options and nothing ever happened. And I just, you know, I I knew the odds were astronomically against. So I just thought, I don't even know what I'm doing with this guy. I don't know that I'm helping him. Uh I don't know how this story ends. How could, how could Hollywood get involved? But there were, there were some producers who made pretty compelling arguments for what they wanted to do. And I said, okay. And I met with them and I picked these two guys. A team led by Gary Foster um, a longtime producer and they wanted to meet my friend Nathaniel which was a good sign I thought Mm -hmm. and I said you know I'm in as long as you don't tie this all up neatly with a with a bow on it like he ends up playing in the LA Philharmonic he's got some serious issues and that's what I'm writing about and they said they said, no, no, we understand that. We want, we want to make a, a movie that helps educate people. And then they started calling me, telling me who they were thinking of for the actors. And every time they called, I just, I mean, it started out with uh, Denzel Washington and Tom Hanks. And and, I would and, just-
1: and by the way, you're kind of the whole time, you're still kind of, I'll, I'll believe it when I see it. Because exactly. you, you'd had your hopes dashed a couple of times. Yeah.
2: And I just well, I just thought there was no way. Plus, I didn't think it was a particularly cheery, necessarily a Hollywood story. But anyhow, because,
1: they, because Nathaniel has mental illness that is, it's not going to, it's not like, I mean, he's going to magically get no. better perfectly, just like, a, he's not going to have a Hollywood ending, but right? and, no. and, and that was your point,
2: right? Exactly. Uh, that's what I was worried about. But anyhow, they, they pursued it and they would call me with different actors that they were contacting. And then it ended up Jamie Foxx for my friend, Nathaniel and Robert Downey Jr. playing me. And even when they, even when they lined that up and said, okay, we're going to begin shooting like whatever it is next week. I was, I was certain that it wouldn't happen. And I'm, I'm still surprised 10 years <laughs> or whatever, however many years later it is that they actually did it, that they made the movie.
1: How banged up were you uh, in the, in that movie? They have you, I think it's a bike ca- crash and your, your face is really messed up in that. Was that, is that for real? Or was, did you have like a scratch?
2: <laughs> that was no exaggeration. Um, I'll tell you. I'll tell you what happened. Um, <clears throat> I was out riding my bike in LA, and uh, next thing I know, I'm in the emergency room, and um, I don't know what happened. And I've, I, in fact, uh, I had forgotten everything that had happened for a week prior to that day. Whoa! Uh, because of the because of the concussion, and that's especially tragic in this case because my wife and I had just gone on an expensive vacation. <laughs> to Monterey Bay and to Carmel that I had completely forgotten about. I mean, I wanted to call and get my money back. I mean, (laughs) if I I don't have any memory of it, come on. Um,
1: I can see that, by the way, in a vacation disclosure for now. It's like hurricanes, floods, pandemic, amnesia. If you forget
2: your trip, you get your money back. Yes, I like that. Um, Where's that insurance? I'm thinking about pet insurance. I'd go for that insurance too. But anyway, um, that memory... um, loss turns out to come back, um, um, years later when, um, I was having a knee replaced knee replacement surgery. And, um, you got to get checked out by a cardiologist before you have them, you know, saw bones in your body. Yeah, And, um, they said, well, you have a heart arrhythmia, but it looks like it's okay. You're, you're good to go for surgery in post-op I died. I went into cardiac arrest and I am, as I'm speaking to you today, back from the dead. I had to be resuscitated. I flatlined in the hospital and when they explored what went wrong, um, it took a, a, a big clue for them, was that I had fallen off my bike and couldn't remember what happened. And they said, you have an arrhythmia in which your heart slows down, slows down, slows down, and then stops. And that can be triggered by, you know, a lot of exercise, by some trauma. Um, So it might've been the anesthesia in surgery or having my, my leg sawed off. That's kind of a big deal. (laughs) Your body was like, wait a minute, this is kind of a big deal. (laughs) Yeah. It might've been when I was riding my bike, it turns out that where I fell was at the top of a hill. So when I had extreme exertion, so they put all of this together and said, okay, you got a heart issue. So I left the hospital with, um, a pacemaker, as well as a new knee. And it's one, it's one thing that has had me thinking about retirement. It's this happened 10 years ago. And I thought, okay, I don't know how many days I've got left years, weeks, maybe it's days, minutes, who knows, but having died once, you know, that slap in the face, that mortality, I just, I I began asking myself, okay, am I going to be one of those people who waits to retire? Um, And then when I finally do, and I've got all of, you know, it's finally, I'm going to recess and here's what, here's how how I'm going to spend my, my new leisure time. I'm one of those people who is too hobbled or I don't remember my, my wife's name. And I really began to think a lot about what is the time to cut loose and, uh, and try a new life.
1: If, if, if you go back to your Philadelphia inquire inquirer days and LA times and all the places you've written, how did you ever touch on retirement as a topic or just once in a while when it kind of came up as an interesting story or had you never really written about that at, just as a columnist prior to the book?
2: Not about retirement per se, but when my parents were going through some health issues, um, and I, by the way, am on the same calendar. You know, I could not escape, you know, the, the heredity. Um, my parents had joint disease. You know, my dad's knees were just so creaky. Um, I ended up having to have both knees replaced. And they had heart issues. And then they had cognitive issues. So I wrote about them going through that whole process and making those tough decisions Ooh. about when can you no longer drive. And you insist, my dad insisted, no, he could still drive. He was a better driver than ever, a better driver than anybody out there. I started writing about these things, about, you know, how how so many people struggle and resist all of the realities that come with aging, and um, you know that 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 got me in touch with a lot of people of retirement age. So when I started to write the book, I knew a lot of people to reach out to. I already had connections with people who were thinking about retirement or had already done it. So I had a whole list of uh, people with I had easy access to.
1: You know, was there a was there a a light bulb moment on what you wanted, when you knew you wanted to write about it. I remember my first real book about retirement was called, You Can Retire Sooner Than You Think. I remember literally the minute I thought that I was going to do it because I came up with this title called Happiest Retiree on the Block in my head because I was a new parent and there was a really popular book out called Happiest Baby on the Block. And I thought, Bing, I I need to do some sort of book that relates to happy retirees. And I was like, oh, I'll do a survey. And this, you know, that could lead to a book. And and ultimately my research in the survey did lead to the book. But did you have like a, a Bing moment or does it just kind of an evolution that you were gonna write Independence Day?
2: I, I did have a Bing moment. It doesn't necessarily flatter me. Um, and it's maybe not what you're expecting. <laughs> yeah. I had begun having these conversations with a lot of peers, my, you know, roughly my age, thinking about the same thing. And there was the availability of buyouts. It's like, hey, you can grab the money and get paid to not work for a year. Why would you turn that down? It may never come around again. So yeah. I'm having lunch with my agent, um, David Black in Los Angeles, and he's a good friend, and we're talking about what's new with your family. What are you thinking about? And I said, I'm thinking of retiring, and um, I'm not sure because I've done it for 50 years and it's so much a part of who I am and I love it, but I wonder if I'm gonna be one of those people who regrets not doing it sooner. And he said, you're, you're talking about identity and who are we when we walk away from something that we're so uh, much uh, involved in. And he said, this is a book. And I said, what do you mean it's a book? And he said, give yourself a year to figure it out, do what you do, interview people, happily retired, miserably retired, can't wait, wish they could go back to work and decide what you're going to do. Give it a one year TikTok element. Mm-hmm. And that was my big moment when my agent said, I think I could sell that book. I know I was going to say, leave it up to an agent to say, no, 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 no. Of course you don't want to. Re- he took you
1: from re- thinking about retiring, then no more money for him to extending it out and getting you to do another project That's maybe that's, he's like, boy, this guy is probably a damn good agent.
2: (laughs) That is a good agent for sure. There you go.
1: (laughs) Full disclosure. I am affiliated with Capital Investment Advisors, which is a full service and a fee only financial planning and investment management firm in Atlanta and Denver and Tampa and Phoenix or wherever you are. And if you'd like to take your retirement planning or retire sooner journey to the next level, Capital Investment Advisors would love to help. You can find our team and schedule a time to chat right at yourwealth.com. That's Y-O-U-R wealth.com. You actually have interviewed at least one person that I've had on this show, Nancy Sloshberg. Oh, you have? Yeah, I've had Nancy on the podcast about transitions in life and the different archetypes of retirees. But I guess what is so different about what you wrote in Independence Day. And in fact, I've never done this or never really thought about this, even though I'm constantly thinking about happy versus unhappy retirees. I don't know if I've ever spent any time interviewing or talking to somebody who just got it really wrong. Like, hey, I really don't like this. Because my experience with families that I've worked with over a lot of years and stayed in touch with, usually the unhappy retirees that have a really rough year or two, they they do kind of turn it around. And usually it's, in in my experience, it's usually for people that have just had nothing to do and they're almost all the unhappy retirees I find are ultra hardworking entrepreneurs, executives that just only knew work. And they yeah. just, they could, they just so struggled with identity the year or two after just, and, and some arguably like forever, but I actually, I want to hear about your top examples of people who just really, it was just a terrible fit. They really regretted retiring. It was just not good.
2: Well, a couple people in the book come to mind. Um, one is, uh, uh Rabbi Naomi Levy, um, who, um, who told me that, and she she gave up her job as a pulpit rabbi so that she could do some other things and then missed it and worked out kind of a hybrid plan. And she said that, she told me a story about a congregant going to her saying, you know, I'm having these issues. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of okay Monday through Friday. Um, I feel all right. I'm, you know, busy. And then on the weekends, I kind of fall apart. And she said, well, tell me about your weekday routines and then about your weekends. And his weekend sounded sounded like mine, where he's jittery, he paces, he wonders what to do. And um, you know, in my case, then I always uh, let me check my email. There may be a column. Somebody just sent in a great column idea. So um, she she concluded that he was somebody, and that there are many of us who just need structure, and without structure, we're miserable. And I think a lot of people um, just you know belly flop into retirement. Without giving much thought to how they're going to spend that time, and that I think that can be a mistake for people who need routines. And I think that uh, the other person who comes to mind is the woman you just mentioned, Nancy Schlossberg. Who, mm-hmm. you're right, she has those six classifications of retirees. She thinks I'm a continuer. That's one of her classifications. Yep. Where you continue doing in some form what you've always done. Maybe you teach. Maybe you're a mentor. Maybe you serve on a board at a, you know, um, some kind of a, um, a I don't, maybe, you, maybe you show up at a high school and, and talk to uh, students who work on the newspaper. But she said, she said this, that, that in retirement, uh, to find happiness, you need to, first of all, have a bit of a plan. You need to figure out a way to find purpose and passion and matter. Because in our work lives, whether you're a teacher, a nurse, you're whether you're digging ditches, no matter what, you're doing something and people expect you to be there and you're making a contribution. And you need to matter to somebody even in retirement. And she said, it's okay if that's the dog who needs to be walked twice a day. It's great if it's your grandchild who needs help with, you know, dental surgery or something um, and paying the bills um, or, you know... Going to work on the board of a nonprofit that you care about, but you need you need to have a purpose and a passion. And she has found people who just didn't have it. And she she says also this is great advice. Uh, retirement is like pre-retirement plans go awry, um, things happen. You need to embrace ambiguity and roll with the punches. So I th- I think that was all very good advice. And and one last person comes to mind, a woman who worked in the patent department at a toy company um, um, in in LA. Um, She was a a clerk and she could not wait for retirement. She quit on a Friday, they gave her a big party. She woke up, you know, jumping for joy on Saturday. Sunday, it's like, oh my God, my, my new life is all spread out in front of me. Monday, she wakes up with nothing to do. She hadn't thought it through and she couldn't think of anything she wanted to do. And on Friday of her first week of retirement, she called her boss and said, I made a big mistake. Can I come back? And she worked four more years. Uh, how old was she? She was, um, like sixties, I believe when she first retired
1: and just Early. got literally got it so wrong that within a week she was back at work.
2: That's right. That's right. And I think people, there are a lot of people who, you know, it's not, it's not quite what, they thought it was cracked up to be. And back to Rabbi Levy, she had great advice on that. If you have some picture in your head about what you're going to do, she advises that before you cut the cord, you sample the dream. Whether you take an extended vacation and see if you really do want to learn how to fly an airplane or play the piano, um, give it some time and make sure that that's going to be a pursuit that that keeps you engaged and gives you, and makes you feel like you matter and you've got purpose before you tell your boss hey I'm out of here and you know you might have a better sense of how you're going to find happiness in retirement
1: sampling the dream is cool it's a cool it's a really cool way to think about it i even go back to and i don't know why this struck me so much after this past thanksgiving i think it's because i have such structure with four kids and there's so many Things that we're constantly having them do with multiple sports and just probably way too much. And if we do get a break, we're quickly like trying to go somewhere or do something. So it's always just like, it's always rocking. And this Thanksgiving, I just really didn't want to travel and get on a plane. And I kind of pseudo convinced my wife that it was cool just to stay and do nothing and just see You know, I have one family member here with some kids. So, And it just so happened that the world kind of shut down. And interestingly, big cities, particularly like Atlanta, they get really quiet. I don't know what LA is like during the holidays, but like Atlanta gets super quiet. And I think it's just because it's such a hub. Everybody goes back to their, where they're from. And it's such a destination. Nobody's from Atlanta. Everyone moves here. So it gets quiet. It it gets, it's, um, And then we had this stretch of about five days because Thanksgiving kind of starts before Thursday. So Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. I I remember by Sunday thinking just how how boring and gluttonous it had become. And it was like, I was super excited Wednesday, excited Thursday, a little less Friday. Saturday, I was kind of like restless. Sunday, I was just kind of thinking, wow, this is, I am so ready to get going again because the kids didn't have basketball. They, they didn't have school. We didn't go anywhere. The, the town was empty. I was kind of like looking around like, Hey, Hey, and, and I, it's almost like this microcosm of what happened to uh, your, your retiree from the patent department. Like within a week, she was like, "Up, ah, I got to go back. Yeah. Yeah. You gotta, you
2: gotta have some sense of what the heck you're going to do. Um, you know, do you mind if I ask uh Wes the age range of your kids?
1: Sure, sure. I have a 15-year-old and then 13 and then 10 and then 6, approximately oh if I can remember correctly.
2: <laughs> my goodness, you're a you're a youngster. You're going to have a full house for years to come. Now, here's let me tell you um about my situation as I was working on the book. I was also facing the time when for the first time in my adult life I would be an empty nester.
1: Ooh, how many kids? By the way, how
2: many kids do you have? Well, I had two sons, and then 25 years later, I <clears throat> had a daughter. I do not advise that anybody put 25 years between their oldest and youngest because, as my boss once said, oh my goodness, you're having another child. Don't you know they're never off the payroll? Yeah, no, that's very true. Um, well, anyhow, um, as I was writing the book and contemplating retirement, I was also contemplating being an empty nester. And um, that, for a lot of people, is something to look forward to. Um, For me, it was not. I mean, I I couldn't bear the thought of saying goodbye to my daughter, who ended up going to school 2,000 miles away. And some of the people I talked to said, you better think long and hard about lining up your life so that you've got a double void at the very same time in your life. You're going to have two huge transitions. One is you no longer have a job to go to. You don't have an office to report to. And the other is you get, you're, 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 you're going to have an empty house and that that's going to put a lot of pressure on your, on your marriage. Um, you know, that's one of the transitions Nancy Schlossberg talks about. Everything changes your your relationship with your colleagues, your relationship to the world around you. So, um, yeah. You don't have to think about that for quite a while, but I did. And I just thought with my daughter going to school, that's one more reason I'm not ready. Um, that's going to give me a lot of, you know, um, new time that I haven't had to, to figure out what to do with it. So when did she go? how many years ago did she go off to school? She's just started her sophomore year.
1: All right. So as you were contemplating all of this over the last couple of years, yeah that was one of the things you learned is to say like, that would, you're right. That's a double whammy. No, the kids leave the nest and you stop working. I have seen, I actually have seen that a couple of times and that's really hard to try. Just the empty nesting itself is a really hard transition. Did, is this, by the way, is this same marriage that you had this 25 year spread or no? Yeah. I was going to say, it sounds like almost, I was thinking about the math, almost mathematically impossible, but
2: Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> or close to a 25 um,
1: year spread. I'm like, that is like, could it be, could, it, could he? Be?
2: <laughs> well, speaking of this wife, her name is Allison, And, um, this is another, uh, um, uh, piece of the book is that she works at home. She's a freelance writer and editor. And, um, I, um, you know, when the pandemic hit my, my newspaper office was closed. So my house became my office. So for the first time in our 25 plus year marriage we were together under one roof all day when ordinarily for those uh, well for the first 25 years i would i would get up and go somewhere
1: yes hold on let me ask you this reporters i i just take for granted that you probably have worked remotely for 15 years but that not really
2: no i mean we had an office and i went to the office almost every day oh no kidding so that was like a, a a little vacation, a daily vacation for my wife to have me out of the house. And now here I am hovering all the time. And I said to her, when I to me, this was this was great. Wow, I can go out in the back. I can go into the kitchen. And I said to her one day, you know, this is this pandemic is like a preview of my retirement. We're gonna have so much more time together. And she said, if this is a preview, I do not want to see that movie. <laughs>
1: Well, wait. So, what she mean? Meaning that you were still working? Were you just not busy enough?
2: Or did- here's what she meant.
1: Yeah, I don't want mean?
2: you. I don't want you hanging around in the same room where I'm working. I don't want you to be sitting there without a job, saying, "When are you going to be done? Let's have a play date. Let's go. You know, um, let's go shopping or play tennis or go to dinner." She said, "You're going to have to build your own life in retirement. I've got a social life and I'm going to have my job." I'm younger than you and might be working longer. So you're going to have to figure it out. You're going to have to find a few more friends.
1: Well, did you take that to heart? Or was it where you were all, by the way, were you working on the book back during COVID?
2: Yeah, it was a, you know, I started it uh, just as COVID was getting started and finished it a year later. And then it takes a year to come out because of the lag time. But um, no, I took it to heart. She was serious. She mm-hmm. was, she was like, it was the Nancy Schlossberg comment about, Um, it's a transition in which relationships change and you got to learn how to manage more time with people or less time with people. And we've worked it out. I mean, I, I, unfortunately we don't live in a a 12 room Malibu beach compound. We're (laughs) in a two bedroom house. So we do still bump into each other, but we've worked out how to give each other our, our private space. By the way, I
1: love that's a snowboard behind your head. It is. Are you a snowboarder? I wish
2: it's my, I'm in, i one of the advantages of being an empty nester is I've now moved into my daughter's bedroom. She's the snowboarder. She's a snowboarder. That's right. Cool. And this gives my wife, you know, a nice little buffer between she's in the other corner of the house. So I'm, I'm, I'm holed up in my daughter's bedroom because Living you guys way.
1: can go. So in LA you can just drive to a mammoth, right? Can't you just go, you're you've got some skiing close by. Yeah, you don't even have
2: to go that far. That's like four or five hours. You can go skiing in an hour and a half. I mean, one of my uh, the the first time I really fell in love with LA, I was kayaking, on the Pacific Ocean, and I was coming back in through Marina del Rey. Into the distance, there were snow-covered mountains. So I was in a t-shirt kayaking, and there are people who have these uh, you know these days where, it's from um, you know it's from the beach to the slopes, and uh, yeah. you know.
1: It is. One of my brothers lives in LA. And when you go from the East, we're an East coast family and you hear somebody that's going to move, went to school, he went to school out there and then ended up getting a job. And then it's kind of like, oh, once you get bit by the California bug for like more than, I don't know, more than a week, (laughs) more than a month, it's hard to come back to the East coast because he does the exact that he surfs and he snowboards. So he's constantly going from the beach to the mountains and he's, and it's just hard to leave that. Even though taxes are a whole lot more and it's more expensive and it's hard to buy a house and all the problems with California, it's still just a a wonderfully beautiful place to live. Yeah, it's like
2: Kramer said to Jerry when Jerry Seinfeld said he was going to California for a job and Kramer said, you can't go, Jerry, she's a seductress, you'll never get away. That is exactly right. She,
1: California is a seductress. That is cool. That's so true. Well, what about your, you know, one of the statistics that was very interesting to me that came from the last research project I did is I, I wanted to know the relationship between uh, living near your kids or, or not. Ultimately what we found out that happiness levels rise between two and five X or happiness propensity. So if you're more likely to end up in the happy versus unhappy retiree camp, it rises by two and a half times. If you end up living near within the same call it geographic area uh, within driving distance was the, was the question I asked uh, your adult children, at least 50% of them. So if, if you live near at least half your kids, it's a high likelihood you end up being a happy retiree. So what, what did you find with folks about family?
2: Well, that's, you know, when you see those surveys, uh, as you know, a lot of people put at the top of the list of things they want to do as retirees is more time with the kids, more time with the grandkids. Um, There is one hazard, though, in, um, you know, um, upping and moving. Um, We we live in more mobile societies today than, than we did when I was a kid. I mean, my parents stayed put in the same small town in Northern California that they were born in but there's a lot of moving around and you may, you know, let's say my daughter who's going to college in Ohio decides to stay there when she graduates and I move to Columbus. I love that city and you know, that would be great. And 10 minutes after I get there, she moves to Seattle or to Atlanta, Uh, then what? So I don't know that you can plan your life around where you think the kids are gonna be. Although in my case, yes, I would like to be near my kids. And so, and if she does stay in the the Midwest or on the East coast, we might move. I mean, I, I loved my time on the East coast in Philadelphia and New York. So I'm open to moving. How about
1: men versus women? Did you see, you know, when your wife, uh, when Allison is, Allison is your wife? Yeah. When Allison said, Hey, you need to get, uh, let's say a more, more packed social calendar uh, yeah, is that harder for guys than it is for for females or not or, or is it just not necessarily?
2: I think that it is and there's a doctor in my book um at Brown University um um who who told me um he's in his 80s and still working as a doctor and he researches aging and um he he, he said that women are much better at retirement than men because they are smarter than we are. <laughs> And they are smarter and and more, um, you know, socially connected because they are better multitaskers. Women are always multitasking, you know, career, um, motherhood, so many things. Um, And men are just kind of, you know, we're just kind of dummies. We're just kind of getting through the day and we don't think about what we might need tomorrow. It's just, duh, you know, all right, what's on television? And I think that women, because they're always doing so many things and a lot of them are smarter than we are, (laughs) I think they've got it figured out. I mean, there are things that they know they want to do and they go and they do it. That's not universally true, but um, I just, I I think that they're better um, wired for retirement. And, um, you know, I, I think that men who don't find something in retirement that keeps them engaged really struggle. And I don't, I don't see that many women struggling with retirement.
1: What about you? So you're approaching 70. You've got another fa- big phase of work. I mean, you just released a book recently. So you've got that. You, you're still working part-time, you said, right? Yeah. What do you think you're going to do?
2: Well, here's the deal. I um, among the people I spoke to, um, to go to school on their experience. I picked two guys in their 90s who are in creative fields. And I did that because although I don't think of my work as, you know, uh, terribly creative, I do stare at a blank screen and I've got to fill it up with something. And, um, I wondered if that is now so much a part of me that I won't know what to do when I'm done with trying to create something out of nothing. So I called two guys in in LA who were in their nineties and still working. Is that what is one of those Mel Brooks? Mel Brooks and Norman Lear, Norman Lear from All in the Family and a million oh, other shows. Yeah, yeah. And my 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 question for them was, I mean, do I even have an option here or as somebody who writes am I cursed? And you know, when when you when you wake up and the creative uh juices are flowing, um what happens when you cut that off? I mean, if if is is creative work oxygen and when you no longer breathe it do you suffocate? And, um, you know, Mel Brooks, <laughs> Mel Brooks, who became my life coach, there's uh, you know, if he ever gets, if, if, if Hollywood doesn't work out for Mel Brooks, he'd be a great would, life coach. <laughs> I would encourage him to get into life coaching because he listened to my, my sad little story about not knowing what to do. And he said, so you like your job? I said, oh yeah, I love it. And he said, but you, you, you got all these other things you wanted to do too. And I said, yeah. Yeah. It's just, when, when will I do those things? And he says, well, here's an idea. Go to the editors at your newspaper and tell them, I want to keep doing what I do, but not as much. Yeah. I want to have more playtime and see what they say. And so that's what I did. I said, Hey, I'm here. I'll take a 25% pay cut. And, um, they said, uh, we're happy to give you a pay.'
1: <laughs> <laughs> now give us the same amount of material.
2: So I I said 25% pay cut, 25% less production. And Norman Lear, you know, gave me advice along the same lines in that as a writer, look, if you take time off, let's say you go to Spain and you think you're going to study, you know, language and food and music, how long before you think there's a book possibility there? So you're always going to be doing this. And, you know, as long as you wake up with an urge to do something, just do it. And he was more the philosopher. Norman Lear said, life is about what's over and what's next. And you're swinging in a hammock between the two. And when you, whatever pulls you out of that hammock, don't think beyond that. Just go with the urge. And he says, for when I spoke to him, he was 98. He's now 100. And he said, he has had 98 years of wonderful, this is over and there's something next. And at the time he was juggling like six TV and movie projects and he didn't, I said, do you ever think about retirement? He said, absolutely not, not ever. So those are lucky people, Mel Brooks and and, um, Norman Norman Lear. There are a lot of people working not because they want to, but because they have to. And that's millions of Americans. you know, and I found some of them for the book too.
1: Yeah, let me ask. Let me ask you about that. How? What? What does that picture look like to you? And and tell me about that. And are those folks that let's say their social security that's all they've got is social security, and and that's not even going to be a whole lot? How tough is that for them? Or are they still okay?
2: I'll tell you one quick story um, that is a good illustration of what the the risks are. Um, this is a, a gentleman who um, worked as a, a kind of a middle manager at a utility company and there was a merger and he was offered a buyout and it was a little earlier than he wanted to retire, but he thought I'm set with social security and everything else. And I've got a house. So he took it. And then two things happened. There was a market dip that um, swallowed a big part of his uh, nest egg. And the other thing was that he was diagnosed with cancer. And um, even though he had uh, Medicare and had supplemental coverage, the bills mount the bills still pile up. And, um, he ended up in his seventies realizing that he needed to go back to work. Mm -hmm. Now for, for, for many reasons, um, it's hard in your seventies to find a good job. And, um, his options were limited and all that he could find, um, was to work as a a checkout guy in a big box discount store. Mm -hmm. So I went to see him and, um, I got to tell you, first of all, it was, wow, what an inspiration. This guy is doing what he has to do to survive. And that's what, you know, a lot of people do. But the other thing was, that could be me. And this guy's hobbling. He had a foot injury. He needed to see a doctor. And he had no idea when he'd be able to stop working. And that, unfortunately, is a lot of people. So part of the difficulty of knowing when to retire is you don't know how much longer you're going to need money. You don't know if you're going to live 10 minutes or 10 years or 30. And this guy ran out and ended up, you know, in a tough market in the middle of the pandemic trying to find work. And is, would you
1: say that, so he's not, it's not a great story then. I mean, it's not a happy ending type story. He's
2: just stuck. Yeah. He's stuck. And he had all these plans. He and his wife were going to, she's retired. They were going to travel the world. They don't know how they'll find better paying jobs. They, you know, they're, they're worried that they would lose their house. Um, and that's, you know, that's a lot of Americans are in that same boat.
1: So let's circle back to uh, Nathaniel Ayers, who who our listeners would know from the movie played by Jamie Foxx, the soloist, which is a really cool movie. I remember, what year did it come out? It's been a little while. Um, I
2: think it was, uh, was it like 2008 or 10, something like that.
1: Yeah, it's been a while. It's um, But it, it really is, it is a, it's a, it's a wonderful, interesting, wonderfully interesting story. Um, what about the purpose? And, and I, I guess people probably ask you where Nathaniel is to this day. It was maybe tell me about what you learned around purpose with that. And, and is, was, was the viola, was it the viola or the violin
2: in real life? In real life? Um, he was trained on the bass, the upright bass, but in real life, He was hauling a cello and a violin around downtown LA.
1: Both. Okay. Cello. Okay. What was that his purpose? And what did that teach you about purpose?
2: Oh boy. Good question. Uh, Wes, because so many people, I mean, you and I are talking here today about how do you find what you're about? How do you find purpose and passion, the secret of a happy life. And, um, you can look at Nathaniel who was homeless and, you know, um, sleeping out there on the streets and fending off rats with sticks while he slept at night. Um, And all of that was horrible and it's a horrible disease and it it doesn't go away. And it hit him when his career was ascendant. You know, he might've been in, you know, one of the great orchestras of the world in Atlanta or LA or Cleveland or who knows where, Um, but, and
1: for our listeners, he was, he has schizophrenia.
2: Yeah. And, The thing that kept him alive, I think, was that his best medicine all these years has been music. So he's always found a way to hold on to an instrument, even if it's got only two strings like he had when I first met him. He was making music out of it. and He's told me music is just you take one note, you put another one together with that, you you keep working until you find your way. So I envied him and I still do um, because he wakes up and, you know, the Norman Lear thing about what gets you out of bed or what tugs you out of that hammock. For him, it's music. He gets up and he plays for hours, or he listens for hours. And here's a nice little um, full circle story. When I began thinking about retirement and what would I do in retirement, one of the things I've always had on my list is to learn music, to get my to dust off the guitar that I never learned how to play, mm-hmm. sitting in the garage, and uh, see if I can make some headway on it. And I played the guitar virtually every day for. Uh, 14 months, and I'm now playing with Nathaniel. Now, I'm not telling you that I'm at his level, <gasps> but when I go to see him, I'll just do my, you know, like uh, amateur shtick on you'll, the guitar. You'll play a couple chords. Exactly. You got it figured out there, and he'll just find a way in on the violin or the cello. And uh-huh. I'm playing with this guy, and he's happy, and I'm happy, and that's not a bad way to, you know, to spend some of your some of your hours in semi retirement that, that's a, that is full
1: circle, and it is cool. And as a musician, when you have a uh, – gosh, it's almost like a sports, right? If, if you're a, a amateur, you know, soccer player, and you're out playing with Pele – the results still pretty damn good right <laughs> so if if you're sitting there with this world class guy from on the yeah. cello you can you can probably make some pretty incredible music by you just hammering out a couple of chords and it's, it's probably equally is enjoyable for both you and
2: uh, Nathaniel I am so grateful that he is patient with me he is not judgmental he's just happy to have somebody playing and um, we'll we'll do it for an hour and I've got a smile on my face the whole time and that's something that I will continue to do in semi-retirement and hopefully in retirement is hook up with him and hopefully keep improving on the guitar.
1: You know, it's actually not a terrible idea to do that on even a larger scale because musicians are are, are cool about the, for the most part, are really cool about that. You know, you think, you, you kind of think that, uh, musicians are almost like athletes and competitive. It's like, well, I'm not going to play with you cause I'm way up here and you're down here. But really there's a lot of tolerance I think within the music community that people understand like, Hey, you're here. I was there at one point. I could still, we can still play together, but it, it is interesting idea to think about really, really talented musicians coupling them with semi beginners. Um, <laughs> It would be, it's it, the concept of what you guys are doing in his, you know, just playing in his apartment on a bigger scale is pretty cool idea. I don't know. That's just a retirement idea. Maybe that's what you're going to you know, the foundation
2: of good and bad musicians. Nobody would buy a CD of ours, but <laughs> maybe I'm, not. I'm having fun anyway. It's, we're that's, having a good time out there. That
1: is amazing. So uh, as we kind of wrap here, I have a good sense of what you're going to be doing in retirement. You're truly a continuer and you will continue to write and what's a top one, two, three thing on, on your bucket list as you move into probably, I'm going to say maybe halftime writing the other half time playing.
2: Well, you're right Wes. that. um, The deal was, let me try three quarters time and then maybe it'll be two thirds time the second year and then halftime and slowly fade away into oblivion. So maybe that's what it'll be. Um, So what, what would I like to do? I'd like to, um, with more time, study music a little more. Um, my my dad's family is from Spain, and my mother's family is from Italy. And I would like to, I speak Spanish, but not fluently. I would like to get fluent in both languages by living in each of those countries for a while and searching for relatives. That would be on my, on my bucket list. And I love to cook. And uh, those are two good countries for you know, for food. And so maybe I could go to cooking classes in Italy and in Spain and I'd be a happy guy. And when I'm back in the States, I could go hook up with Nathaniel and get out my guitar and uh, we'll jam together. To me, yeah. that'd be a pretty good life.
1: That sounds pretty awesome. What would Alison do? If she's younger, would she be able to work in Spain and Italy with you?
2: Um, <laughs> she, I, I think if I say, the words either Italy or Spain she'll find a way to make it work <laughs> she she'll be happy to go but um yeah as a freelancer I'm sure she could work from anywhere in the world and um, you know I'm look I'm coming up on um, I'm coming up on 70 very soon and my parents at my age began you know forgetting names and um you know it's I have no reason to believe that I won't that I'm not on that same path. And so I, I want to really embrace each day and figure out what it is I really want to do and begin to do it. Like, uh, like the rabbi said, sample the dream. Don't wait too long. I'm reminded of the woman I called who was a retiree and I had trouble getting her. She was one of the many people at a retirement community that I, I, I had all these pen pals giving me advice. I couldn't get hold of her. And one day I called and she picked up and she was on her boat <laughs> off the coast of California. And she said, we just bumped into a fishing boat here. They just tossed us fresh catch. We're going to, at sunset. We're going to have cocktail hour and then grill some fish on our boat off of Laguna beach. And she said, do not wait to retire. Get out <laughs> here as soon as you can while you can still enjoy it. So I'm, I want to find ways to enjoy what time I have left.
1: Ah, uh, I, I, between cooking in Italy, Spain, and fresh fish off the coast of Laguna. For some reason, I leave the the retire sooner podcast hungry very often. I'm I'm, I'm leaving here hungry. Uh, it was I interviewed um, Ken Honda who who wrote a book called Happy Money, and he talked all about eating sushi. I literally was like for a week, every meal I wanted to eat was sushi. Uh, I'm excited for you, and and I love that you're doing what I I've written about called the. It's really I call this phase, and it's. Not a great name now that I've used it all these years, but it's the retirement gray zone, uh, and it's just it's just a transition zone, right? It's not a black or white. We think of retirement black white. It's like oh, I work and I stop. It really it's it's really it's that in between. Your your analogy was that it's almost this hammock from thing to thing. I think of it as this gray zone from black to white, and you're kind of already you're in that semi-retirement mode gray zone. We should have named it like a cool color and it would have been better like blue zone, but then there's already blue zones. I can't take that silver, color maybe, maybe silver. Silver zones, silver zones, um, but, um, but this is really cool, man. It's uh, Steve, very, very fun to talk, very educational and insightful to think about how you've thought this through. People that didn't want to retire, didn't like retirement all the way to the people who couldn't retire to the Mel Brookses of the world who are like, hey, just don't retire. And um, it, it it all comes full circle to you, uh, jamming for, with the guitar and the cello.
2: <laughs> yeah, do you want to join my band?
1: I do. I'll be <laughs> like the. I'll, I'll be on the bad musician side. <laughs> <laughs> Independence Day. What I learned about retirement from some who've done it and some who will never will. Uh, Steve Lopez from the Los Angeles Times. All right, Steve. Thanks, man.
0: information.